something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Hannah Waddingham, and this is Hustle Rule, an audio docuseries featuring the untold stories of women soccer players around the world, based on the book Under the Lights and in the Dark, written by Gwendolyn Oxenham. In South London, where I grew up, I didn't know there were women's footballers. In my 20s, I'd go to the pub to watch Liverpool play, but I never thought of the sport as an option for myself. You know, I'm six foot tall and my build definitely lends itself to sport, but I think my mum, bless her, was just like, oh, no, 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 don't do that, you might hurt yourself, that's a boy thing. So it kind of infiltrated I mean, of course, in England, we are football mad. And when the Men's World Cup comes on, the whole country is gripped by fever. But only recently has the women's team hit the country's collective consciousness. A turning point was the 2015 Women's World Cup. England got to the semi-final, but lost a heartbreaker on an own goal. The pictures of a devastated Laura Bassett, consoled by her teammates, spread far and wide, and suddenly the country was caught up in the emotion. The lionesses had arrived. In the United States, that turning point happened much earlier, when the national team won the World Cup in 1999. But while a generation of girls watching Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm and Christine Lilly imagined wearing the jersey themselves... That dream had nothing to do with a salary or a career. A professional league didn't exist. Thanks to Title IX, American girls knew soccer was a way to get a college scholarship. The game equaled academic possibilities. The popular National Collegiate Athletic Association commercial told them that nearly all NCAA athletes go professional in something else. And girls knew it was talking to them. In the United States, from early on, soccer was always a route, not a destination. But in the past 20 years, there's been a trajectory of change. This episode is Shapeshifters, Side Hustlers and The New Guard, a three-act special, the last in our series, featuring the voices of players around the world, from the players of the past to the new stars of Olympic Lyonnais, Manchester United 
Angel City FC and the US national team. Here to tell you just what this game has meant and how it will forever shape their lives. In Act One, Shapeshifters, we talk to the women who had no pro league to play in. What's it like to be a 22-year-old has-been, to be the best at what you do, and then have to completely start over? Kicked out of their sport, they shapeshifted and went on to chase dreams in entirely different fields. Today, before we take you into anyone else's story, we want you to hear Gwen's. When I was 12 years old, I tried out for the Florida Olympic development team. I remember sitting in the grass as they called out the numbers of the players who'd been chosen, aching for them to call my number. They did not call it. When I went up to the coach to find out what I'd done wrong, he told me, you're just too awkward for this level. Awkwardness, that didn't even sound like something I could work on. But I just remember feeling this sort of click of, no, this is the one place I am not awkward. This is the one place in my life where I belong. And you're wrong. And I'm going to show you that you're wrong. After that, I trained with my team, my brother's team, and I called up the high school team and asked if I could train with them too. Every day after those practices, I dribbled around trash cans in the street. The days I doubled up on practice, I dragged the trash cans under the streetlight and dribbled in the dark. Soccer was always my escape. My brother, who I love very much, was in trouble a lot. The police would be at our house, he went to prison. Things weren't easy, but I had soccer. The game was what I could turn to, and I think that's true for so many of us. When I was 16 years old, I skipped my senior year of high school and got a scholarship to Duke University, my dream school. I was the youngest D1 athlete in the history of the NCAA. I scored two goals my first game, and I thought I was on my way. I wanted to be Mia Hamm. I even wrote her a letter and told her that. But by my senior year, I was not the best player in the country. The national team was not knocking at my door. When my senior season ended... They handed us plaques that showed our span, 2000 through 2004. An underclassman kind of nailed how we felt when she compared the plaque to a tombstone. It looks like you guys died. I would have tried out for the U.S. Pro League, but it folded right before I graduated. I was 20 years old and my career was over, which meant I had to find a new life. Suddenly, I wondered if maybe I devoted too much time to dribbling around trash cans. That summer, I got a job as a deckhand scrubbing toilets on a boat in Mexico. I was really excited to plunge into a new world. The people that I was working with, um, you know, they used to be bakers in a cake shop and they had astronomy degrees and they treated me like I was a freak. Like, you mean you've only played soccer your whole life? I loved this perspective of, oh, like the world is large and I've only been focused on one part. Let's see what else is out there. And I thought to myself, um, you know, I'm going to eat sashimi on the deck with other deckhands from all over the world. 
Uh, I told myself I'm so excited to live this soccer-free life. Uh, And this, I soon discovered, was a lie. We anchored off this island that served as an outpost for the Mexican army. On the dock, I could see soldiers with machetes and machine guns. And right behind them, I could see a makeshift soccer field with driftwood goalposts. I dingied over there and I made kicking gestures. And within five minutes, I'm sharing goal celebrations. They're picking me up. It's monsoon rain. And I just remember thinking, who am I kidding? Nothing is better than this. But the summer ended and I began my new life. I went to graduate school in creative writing. Those NCAA commercials talk about the values sports instill. Determination, perseverance. But all I felt was insecurity. It took me 15 years to get good at soccer. And now I was supposed to just go be good at something else? Yet it was true that I knew how to work hard. And all the effort I'd put toward playing, I now transferred over to learning how to write. But I never forgot that game in Mexico. It always just kind of sat in the back of my brain. And I went to the Duke Library with a former teammate, and we sat there with a legal pad, brainstorming about how we could keep the game. You know, if I can't play on the national team, then what could I do? And pickup has always been what I loved the most. I loved playing pickup. So we made a documentary, Pelada, about pickup soccer around the world. We went to 25 countries playing with prisoners in Bolivia and moonshine burrs in Kenya and old men in Brazil who just beat the heck out of each other every Sunday morning. Seeing all of these people who love this game, the same game that we're all playing and none of them made it either, I didn't really care about not making the national team anymore. The film was the beginning of my life as a storyteller, leading me to the stories I'm telling today. Because of the game, I get to talk with players all over the world and hear about their experiences and what their life is like. And I wouldn't trade that. I love, love what I do. My Duke teammates also shapeshifted. Our ambition funneled into new directions. They became doctors, scientists, CEOs. Crystal Presley, a defender on our team, helped discover a gene that causes obesity. She's now a surgeon. Our captain, Casey Truman, who used to make our whole team burnt CDs, became one of Hollywood's most sought-after music supervisors. The songs you hear during the heart-wrenching scenes on some of the most popular TV shows, like Mad Men, Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, she's the one who picks them out. You know, when pro soccer was no longer an option for me, I had to find a new dream. And I don't think I realized that I was looking for a new dream. It was just that music was my passion, and I just went after it like there was nothing else. You can't deny what you love. My other Casey at Duke, Casey McCleskey, was one year behind me. She became a litigator. When I met her, I knew I would never be the best. No amount of practice would ever get me to her level. I never saw her lose a single drill at practice. That's not hyperbole. She was our leading scorer and ACC Offensive Player of the Year in 2005. She had an astonishing gift. Being on the women's national team was always my goal. But in my junior year, the league folded. I remember very vividly when we had our last game. It was against UCLA. You know, the whistle blew and it was like, now what? You know, there was no league here. And is this the end? And for something that I had 
I poured everything into, you know, like my whole life, I was a soccer player. Every extra minute I had, it was pretty devastating. I think at the time I just felt like I needed to grow up and be an adult and stop kind of chasing this silly dream. And so I came home and I took the LSAT and I went to law school. And then like halfway through law school, the league came back. But I just said, you know, this is the path I've taken and I need to go through with law school and just kind of forget about soccer. So I think part of it is just like the nostalgia and the missing that version of myself that will never be. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea that Casey's husband and her three sons never even knew this part of her. I kind of wish I had maybe like a highlight tape or something to show them. And, you know, it's like if I was like an artist and I had like these paintings I did and then my husband never saw my paintings and I can't paint anymore. You know, it's kind of a weird thing to not be able to share that with him. And I'm also not like, I don't, it's not like I'm going to talk about it all the time. Like I, I was, you know, it was so good one, one 20 years ago, you know, but I'm glad, you know, <laughs> you know, all the things that made me who I am, I learned playing soccer. Mother's day is right around the corner. And in true, she pivots fashion. We're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. 
My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Act 2. Side Hustlers. The generation that did have a league to play in still knew their livelihood was tenuous. Two US leagues, WUSA and the WPS, had folded. In 2016, a third attempt at a pro league began, the NWSL. The starting salary for the NWSL professional player was just $7,200. Players often lived with host families, a couple even roomed at a retirement home. And these college-educated players are having to choose this lifestyle over much higher-paying career routes. Ali Riley, a Stanford grad on the New Zealand national team, who's followed the game all over the world, had this to say. You know, my mom, we had had these conversations from high school because she wanted me to go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton. And I, you know, I was very, very dedicated to to my academics and I had good grades, but I just, I wanted to play soccer and I wanted to play at, at, at a top school. But those conversations started pretty early where she's like, you've got to be a doctor, you've got to be a lawyer. Her parents came from China, raised four daughters. They made their own clothes, you know, never had had any money. And I think she just wanted me to have so much more than that and and to feel secure. But it just was so perfect that the league came back right when I, you know, the year before I was graduating, I was just blindly, you know, going to follow my dream. I think it wasn't until two years later when the league folded that I kind of realized um, I have no job and no home. But Ali and many others around the world found a way to keep playing anyway. In Ali's case, she took off for Sweden. Playing for FC Malmö, she made a yearly income. But not everybody did. These were athletes willing to do anything to play, even if it meant playing for no salary in front of empty stands in countries far away from their homes. No matter where they were from or how much they did or did not make, they were playing because they loved to play. But to make it, everybody had a side hustle. My name is Bettina Soriano. I've had the opportunity to play for the Argentinian national team. I'm a police officer. I actually work eight hours a day every single day so that I can go and play soccer in the afternoon. My name is Isla Brown. I played for Trinidad Tobago National Women's Team for 16 years, and I am 52 years old right now. To survive as an amateur soccer player in Trinidad, you had to have a job. So my job at the refinery was process control that deals with all the little gadgets that measure time, flow, pressure, and temperature, stuff like that, so that they don't blow up and cause a catastrophe. I'm Thora Helgadottir, and I played for Iceland for 17 years, and I played professionally for six. I was the, the CFO for DHL Iceland, working crazy hours at the same time, and I was still on the national team. Nowadays, Thora runs the Central Bank of Iceland. Hi, welcome to Starbucks. My name is Coco. 
like my very nice, like friendly voice. I would work at Starbucks starting at five o'clock in the morning and then work till about two. My sister used to work at that store. She would come in and be like, you guys know that she has a Wikipedia page and that you're actually working with a superstar. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, Savannah, please stop. <laughs> After Coco Goodson retired from soccer, she joined the military. So I am a first lieutenant. I'm stationed at Fort Bragg and I am a field artillery officer. So like the big cannons, we, we shoot the big cannons. English footballer Beth Mead was also a bartender for a local pub while she played for Sunderland. Cameroon's Galen Ganemuit used her football paycheck to buy un moto, a taxi motorcycle, which grew into a family taxi business in Yaoundé that she ran on the side while playing professionally in Sweden. So often, athletes are treated as one-dimensional, good at kicking a ball only. But you can't say that about any of these women. They had a whole other life beyond the game. Side hustling, doing whatever it takes in order to keep playing. And these women are also in a constant state of hatching plans and pursuing alternate lives. They are big picture thinkers. Everybody's got a backup plan, an idea for what's next. Spain's Celia Jimenez, who currently plays for the Orlando Pride, has a degree in aeronautical engineering. She's planning to become a rocket scientist. For others, the answer isn't moving on from soccer, but finding a way to stay. Mami Yamaguchi is a Japanese national team player who played professionally in Sweden, the U.S., and Japan. And she wants to pass her love of the game on to others. Some weekends, she coaches as many as 11 games in two days. If you get coached by a you know, great coach, the kids just change totally. It's kind of like a magic. <laughs> I love the game more than anybody, probably. So that's kind of split my love to the players. Hey, from the start, okay, we're going to dominate the game. We're going to dominate the ball. Uh, we're going to play our style, right? Yeah, let's go. Like Mammy, a lot of former players give back to the game. Isler, the Trinidadian who worked in the oil factory, she went on to coach national teams in Trinidad, the Virgin Islands, Suriname, and Antigua. Other former players become owners or GMs. Take Eni Aluko, who played over 100 games for the English national team. She readied herself for a life after the game, but she could never quite tear herself away from football, which has had her heart since she was a kid growing up in public housing in the British city of Birmingham. I was the only girl in the area, so like my quickest way of feeling accepted was to play football with the boys. So every time the boys knocked on my door and said, can any come and play? The joy I used to feel at like five, six years old, I just was like, yes, I just want to play. I just want to play. I want to play. So coming from a traditional sort of Nigerian family, education is everything, right? It's like non-negotiable. So my mom was like, yeah, cool. Like you, you play, you do your thing, but you know, you do have to focus on your school particularly because there was just no professional pathway in football. So, you know, I really focused in on getting my grades. The good grades led her to a law degree. But despite getting a first, the very top grade, an equivalent of magna cum laude, 
she was met with rejection letter after rejection letter from the law firm she applied to. It was so bad that my mom started hiding the letters because she just didn't want me to feel so discouraged. And then I got an offer out of the blue to play in America, so that in the WPS, the previous league. The kicker was that the owner of the professional team also offered her a job in his law firm during the off-season. For a good five years, I was working as a lawyer whilst I was playing semi-pro. And then Chelsea offered me a full-time professional contract. And then I was like, okay, cool. Like, I'm going to commit to football now. And, you know, I can be a lawyer when I'm 60. Women players definitely love the game because we definitely don't do it for the money, right? I would have earned more as a lawyer than if I played. For a long time, I was happy to earn less because I just wanted to play. Whereas in the men's game, obviously, you, you know, you have just ridiculous amounts of money being talked about. Nowadays, Eni is helping to create the culture at the National Women's Soccer League's hottest new team, Angel City FC, which was founded by probably the most high-profile ownership group any team has ever had anywhere in the world. Hollywood powerhouse Natalie Portman is one of its founders, and its investors include Serena Williams, Eva Longoria, Jennifer Garner, Becky G, Abby Wambach, Mia Hamm, and Gabrielle Union. I'm the sporting director. Effectively, it's the general managers. This team and this role feel all the more important in light of the previous NWSL season, in which five male head coaches and a general manager were fired for abuse allegations. So to have any managing and Freya Kuhn coaching, both women, both former players, it feels like hope. You know, I was a player for over 15 years, so understanding what players want and what makes players tick and, and the environment, the professional high-performance environments that you need to build. It's not something that's like alien to me or something that we have to, I have to read a book to understand. Like, I just get it. I've been in it. I'm passionate about female players feeling like they have control over their own destiny. So when it comes to my job, when it comes to making trades and, and sort of the business end of this job, I will always have that human element in the back of my mind. Ultimately, now the game has moved on and there is more money, there is more investment, but it's also making sure that we don't lose that really pure element of women's sport. Mother's Day is right around the corner and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. 
the war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the past decade, the women's professional game has grown by leaps and bounds. The storied European clubs like FC Barcelona and Chelsea FC have poured money into the women's game. In South America, football confederation CONMEBOL has mandated that all men's teams that compete in the continent's championship, Copa Libertadores, must have a women's team. Audiences worldwide have exploded, attendance records getting shattered. New records bring new fans, and new fans bring new momentum. Which brings us to Act 3, in which we introduce you to the new guard, the Momentum Generation. Change is still ongoing, but there has never been so much hope. Here's Gwen. At the Africa Cup of Nations in Cameroon in 2017, 40,000 filled the stadium, five hours before kickoff. That same year, at the UEFA European Championship, the Netherlands sold out every game, and one quarter of the Dutch population, 4.1 million people, watched the final on television. And it isn't just the national teams drawing these kinds of crowds. So are the professional teams. On a club team level, the Portland Thorns of the NWSL can draw 20,000 plus fans to a midweek game. In Bogota in 2017, a crowd of 33,000 watched Santa Fe win Colombia's first ever women's professional league final. It was a goosebump moment for all the players who have spent years being told by naysayers that there weren't fans for the women's game. Here's Ori Velasquez, who has played on the Colombian national team for 15 years. They say nobody watched women's soccer. So we got to the final and it was almost full, the stadium. I was like, okay, now tell me how. This is the first time I've, I felt professional in my, in my country. 
So it was amazing because we went out and they were just explode like all that emotion. Records keep getting broken. In 2018, more than 52,000 fans packed Estadio Azteca in Mexico City for a women's final between Tigris and Monterey. In 2022, more than 91,000 fans showed up to see Real Madrid play Barcelona. And with new attendance records and new fans come new salaries. In Norway, New Zealand, England, Australia, Brazil, and as of 2022, the United States, men's and women's players are to be paid equal salaries for their national team appearances. And on May 18th, as U.S. soccer confirmed the terms of its new contracts, it announced a global first. The U.S. Soccer Federation will pool World Cup prize money, which is apportioned to national teams by FIFA based on where they place. The grand total of what the women's and men's national team win will be shared equally between them. And considering that the total men's prize money at stake in Qatar, $440 million, is more than seven times the women's prize money in Australia next year, that's a gigantic change. On the professional club level, there is also, finally, major progress. Here is Norway's Ada Hegerberg. She's the all-time leading goal scorer in UEFA's Champions League and a star forward for Olympic Lyon. I remember it like it was yesterday, the first summer when I came to Lyon. I felt like I was living a childhood dream, to be honest. I came from a very tough regime in Germany and I came to a super, super professional club, Olympic Lyonnais. Now, today, we train at the same ground as the men's do. We have the same training center and kind of like we have top conditions in order to also perform on a high level. We managed to win the Champions League seven times. I think the people of Lyon are very proud of the women's team. I can feel that mutual respect from the men's players as well. They see that we bring something to the table as well. So by being given these conditions, we're actually... The, in a place to deliver as well. And that, I think that's been very, very important. Jackie Gronin is a Dutch midfielder who plays for Manchester United. Like Ada, she makes a six-figure salary. But she studied law anyway. Because of the Netherlands' women's soccer explosion, classmates weren't just classmates. They were also fans. When Tilburg University went online due to the pandemic, she joined the Zoom classes from home. And here's what happened. When COVID started, I kind of saw my way to do classes with other people because everyone had to do it online. So I was kind of like, okay, I can do everything now what everyone else is doing. So then after one of the first classes, one of the teachers wrote me if I could sign in on a different name because people kept writing things in the chat about football, like when the next game was. And, and so she asked if I could use a different name and, and turn down my camera. No longer is a player like Jackie just an anonymous face. And it's not just the professional athletes who have an opportunity to make money nowadays, thanks to one of the most dramatic changes in a generation of American sport, the NCAA's June 2021 policy shift. In the past, while colleges made massive amounts from their sports teams, 
The athletes themselves were not allowed to cash in. Now, college athletes are allowed to sign endorsement deals and make money from their own name, image, and likeness, or NIL. The first Nike signing under these new rules? American football? Basketball? No, it was a women's soccer player. I'm Raylan Turner. I play soccer for UCLA, and I'm Nike's first NIL athlete. Obviously, they chose a female athlete, which for some people is very surprising. But in my opinion, I think that women's soccer is on the rise right now, and it's making its way up to men's football, men's basketball. I think that it has a lot of publicity now more than ever, and I think that it's a big step in the sports community that women are finally getting the recognition that they deserve. Growing up, my biggest role models were Abby Wambach and Michelle Akers because their game was just so passionate and ruthless. And I always looked up to college athletes, so it's, it's really cool to be a college athlete now. I feel like a lot of the times people's role models are people who are at the top and I'm on my way there. So I feel like I'm in more of a relatable position than those who have already made it. I just hope to be someone who a little girl looks up to. And another huge change for U.S. soccer? A handful of women soccer players have begun to either leapfrog college sports altogether or, like men's basketball players commonly do, leave college early to go pro. I'm Sophia Smith, and I was the first teenager to be drafted into the NWSL. I played two great seasons at Stanford and loved every second of it. And I think, you know, after winning the national championship, I was ready for something new. When I entered the draft, it was very rare that someone would leave college early to become a professional soccer player, um, specifically a female professional soccer player. And there was a lot of mixed opinions on my decision, but um, my heart was telling me I was ready and to just take that jump. And I've just loved it. I feel like this is the life that I was supposed to live. Heroes are multiplying. A much wider range of kids watching today have a chance to recognize themselves in today's new stars. Hi, my name is Madison Hammond, and I'm a professional soccer player. I became the first Native American soccer player to play in the NWSL, which at the time I never, I did not think about it. I wasn't conscious of it. That wasn't the goal, but I didn't realize how freaking dope that is to be someone that people can look to and see in a space that wasn't there before. I mean, I can't really put into words like what that feels like, because in the moment I was like, oh, I'm just another girl trying to make it in the league. But then it was like, no, you represent so much more. The daughter of Ethiopian immigrants was the number one pick of the 2022 NWSL draft. Hi, I'm Naomi Gurma. I'm a defender for Wave FC, and I started in Malata soccer um, My dad pretty much started it in the Bay Area, and it was really just a way for the Ethiopian community to come together on the weekends. It was just a big group of us who were kind of like 
figuring out for the first time how to live in the U.S. So all first generation Americans because our parents hadn't done it. And it was great to kind of have that community like within the kids to lean on and people going through similar experiences where we're speaking a language at home and we're going to school speaking a different language and just like having the cultural difference between home and school is something that I think can be hard to balance especially when you're younger. None of my success would have been possible without the community around me. Naomi went on to become valedictorian of her high school and then captain of the Stanford soccer team. She remembers trying to help her parents watch the draft which had gone remote due to the pandemic. Like two minutes before the draft was starting, I was like trying to tell them how to turn it on and how to get onto the right, the right channel, which is very typical for our family. But yeah, they were really excited. My dad told me my mom just started crying. <laughs> you know, it's really cool, I think, to see them also have that moment of like, wow, like we helped our daughter get here and, you know, like she's one step closer to her dream. There's never been a better time to pursue that dream. The NWSL's Players Union negotiated its first ever collective bargaining agreement. It increases player salaries across the board and raises the minimum yearly salary to $35,000. While modest in comparison to the men, It's still more than five times what it was in the beginning. The agreement will also provide free housing, transportation, fully vested 401k contributions, health, life, and disability insurance, eight weeks of paternal leave, and up to six months of mental health leave. Playing circumstances are better than they have ever been. But the changed environment doesn't mean the players today are no longer hustling. They're just hustling in a different kind of way. They're hustling for change, picking up the fight not just within sports, but for the world as a whole. Meet Midge Purse, the first Harvard graduate on the women's national team. In the past few years, she's taken on fossil fuels, racial inequality, and gender inequality. At one point when I wanted to be a really great soccer player, I felt like I couldn't do anything else. I felt like very guilty for expanding in different directions. And now when I think about that, it sounds like the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I ran for the Harvard Board of Overseers, um, which is the highest democratically elected board at Harvard. I ran for the board for two reasons. One, I think, or I thought that the board needed to be more inclusive in terms of its governance. It didn't have anyone who had graduated from the school within the past 10 years. And that a voice of someone who had been there within like this type of generation would be really important to be included when making decisions. And the second reason was I ran on a climate crisis based platform to push Harvard to divest from fossil fuels, which they have committed to. Not only was Midge invested in saving the planet, in 2021, Midge felt compelled to create the Black Women's Player Collective, a nonprofit organization whose stated goal is to advance opportunities for Black girls in sport and beyond. I experienced early on that being a Black player at times was different than being a white player when you're playing women's soccer. There are just subtleties and not so subtle 
things that people say coaches do and um, ways that people react to you that are very accepted. I, I once had a coach tell me that I scored really ugly goals. I was the the leading scorer at the time on the team, but he wouldn't start me. And I used to get in the car after practice and I was so upset. And my dad, he he just told me you had to be twice as good. And I remember saying, I am twice as good. I scored more goals than everyone else. And he said, no, you're not twice as good. It has to be undeniable. And then um, I wanted my dad to talk to the coach and he said, no, you talk to the coach. Um, and I asked him, I was like, why aren't you playing me? And he said, you score ugly goals. And I go, but I'm scoring. And he goes, being fast and athletic isn't enough. And at the time, it really struck me because I had never been reduced to being just fast and athletic. It was very strange. And in my experience and in the way that it happened, it was because I was Black. And I know some people will hear that and say, well, you don't know, you don't know. I know, <laughs> you don't know. And that's fine. Like we can agree to disagree, but it's things like that that are subtle and like it, it happens. Yeah, truthfully, I haven't spoken about it in a long time. And even speaking about it right now, I kind of just got like thrown back into it and how angry I was. I was, I was so upset. And I remember my dad being so upset because it was just very clear to me that he didn't want me to have that type of experience, but I was having it anyway. I started the Black Women's Player Collective with a couple of other players in the league during the Challenge Cup. We were in a bubble, it was a pandemic, and the country, I know, the world truly was um, pretty much in turmoil about racial justice. And it was a really, really difficult time because players were dealing with the decision of whether or not to kneel during the anthem. And, you know, on the surface, it's, it's a very personal choice. It's, you know, up to you. You have the right to do whatever you want. Um, but behind closed doors, people felt very judged for whatever their decision was. And we were having so many conversations about what people's decisions meant and what they meant by their decisions and um, what their perspectives and thoughts on the country, the status of Black Americans were, and hurtful things were said, you know, it was, and shocking things were said. And it was a very exhausting time, I think, for all of the Black players in the league, not exclusively at all. Um, but the Black Women's Player Collective was made to support those players. The league has been doing different things in an effort to protect some players, but not others. And when I say that, I'm referencing um, they wanted to take the anthem away, but the reason they wanted to take the anthem away was to protect players who were standing from any backlash. We were like, that's really, a, that's very targeted audience you have to protect. Midge also took on gender inequality going to the White House alongside soccer icon Megan Rapino. It was a really funny day because I drove from Jersey home that morning and my dad 
took me to the White House and then just parked on the side of the road and waited for me to come back out as if it was just soccer practice. The point of what I said was to highlight the fact that when we're talking about equal pay, people don't really understand we're talking about equal investment. There's just this entire history of cross-industry support forcing men's sports to become what it is today. So many different organizations and groups, including like the government and government subsidies, pushed really hard to make men's sports so amazing. And we are constantly compared to what they have produced with all of that investment without the same investment, anything near it. Um, so I just, the point was that you can't really compare the two until you invest the same amount in the two. While this push for investment is a continuous process, the emergence of social media has opened up a path for women athletes to invest in themselves, just like the other influencers of their generation. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. It changes everything. All the coverage and airtime and exposure you weren't given, social media allows you to take it for yourself, to be seen, to be followed, to be appreciated. And suddenly your league, your sport is a thing. And you yourself can become a monetizable brand with only your cell phone. It's a second stream of income for a lot of people. And I think that's absolutely amazing. I know players who make more off of their social media than they do from actually playing. There are ripple effects, ground swells, where one tweet becomes one million tweets. Gabrielle Union, a former collegiate athlete, an Angel City FC investor, and an actress with 20 million followers, tweeted at Sophia Smith the day she played her first game for the national team. Union wrote, growing up, playing soccer in the 80s and 90s, seeing other Black girls out there was extremely rare. Today, I'm so full of pride watching these strong young women have so much success on and off the field. I mean, when I got the notification on my phone that she tweeted about me, I had to click on it and like make sure it was actually her. I couldn't, couldn't believe it was real. That first game, soccer star Abby Wambach also tweeted to congratulate her. Smith replied, posting a childhood pic. In the picture, you see a post-game Abby Wambach bending down, putting her arm around Sophia, who is six or seven years old, her big brown eyes looking absolutely wowed by the woman beside her. So I replied to the tweet with the picture and, and just told her that she's a huge reason why this has happened to me, why I'm in this position getting my my hopefully first cap of many with the with the U.S. national team. So it was a really cool moment just to kind of see how it comes full circle. You have to see it to, to dream it and to be it. This kind of intergenerational support is one of the awesome things about social media. But all that connectivity, the ease with which a fan can speak directly to a player, can also be intensely difficult. In the past... The athlete waved to the crowd at the end of the game and said goodbye. Now, it can feel like the audience stays with you always. Like other athletes, including Naomi Osaka, who have posted about mental health, Sophia recently made an impassioned tweet to fans to remind them that athletes are human. You know, I think sometimes 
people might show up to sporting events and think that we athletes are there just to entertain them and that we, you know, don't have feelings or things that they yell or things that they comment on social media. They think maybe we don't see them or hear them, but we do. We're people before we're athletes. Yeah, we are strong and we maybe put up a front out on the field that we can handle anything, but it's not always the case. Um, and I think mental health is just recently being more and more talked about. Even for me, I've never really, you know, given it the time of day um, because I personally haven't felt like I've struggled with it. But just, you know, recently my good friend at Stanford passed away um, from suicide. So I think I'm starting to become more aware of that and maybe specifically more with athletes in the way that we handle it um, or lack thereof handle it because, you know, we're expected to be strong and nothing's supposed to bother us and this and that. And I think it's just, it can almost be a toxic way to handle things. So I think the more we can talk about it, the more, you know, athletes feel like they can open up about it and be vulnerable about it. Um, and I just think that's a huge thing that we need to, you know, take a, a big step forward. If I have an opportunity to spread some sort of good, I will do that and I will use the platform that I have to do that. Each generation wants to make the game better for the next. And that same quality that pushed these athletes to be the best is also what made them strong enough to fight for change. There's audacity to be both strong and vulnerable, to keep pushing, to speak up, to drag and pull and lift and dream your sport forward. This series took you inside the dreams of women from all over the world, from Lagos to Melbourne, from Queens to Bogota. They found the game when they were young and hung on for all they were worth. Their dreams had nothing to do with fame. It was really only ever about love. It didn't matter if they were nobodies or somebodies. If they were playing in the shadows or in the spotlight, here's what they knew. The feeling they had while they were playing, it was the best thing they'd found. No matter how far they did or didn't get, they'd all tell you. Playing this game gave us so, so much. The highs, the wins and the crowds, are undoubtedly special. But when your career is over, the smaller, quieter moments of how you got there mean every bit as much. Running sprints in the sun, hopping fences, sneaking onto fields. Fetching forgotten balls from the patch of the trees beside the refugee camp. Sleeping in the cleats you bought from the second-hand store. Doing your homework on the subway home from practice at 11 p.m. in Tokyo. Not making a guy at a gym in an underground league in Queens. The scout standing at your corrugated team during Lagos, saying you've got what it takes to make it. Your father's face as he relents, he says, yes, my daughter, you can play. Hitchhiking to professional football practice on a dirt road in Brazil. Wearing jersey numero 10, the number your country gives to the gods. Hand washing that jersey in a cement sink in the back alley. Juggling until late with your mom, standing under the street light just so we could see. 
Waking up in the middle of the night because you tried to shoot in your dreams. It's about want. It's about effort. In the end, the hustle you bring rules the outcome. Hustle Rule is a production of Waffle Iron Entertainment, Range Media Partners, Observatory, Audio Up Media, and iHeartRadio. Written and directed by Gwendolyn Oxenham. Hosted by me, Hannah Waddingham, and is based on the book Under the Lights and in the Dark, written by Gwendolyn Oxenham. The executive producers are Justin Biskin from Waffle Iron Entertainment, Bo Balligan from Range Media Partners, and Sean Titone from iHeartRadio. Co-written by Ruth Hilton, Produced by Gwendolyn Oxenham, Ruth Hilton, and Jordana Glick-Fransheim. Co-produced by Jimmy Jelinek and Jared Goodstadt. Edited by Carrie Caulfield-Arick. Sound design and mixing by Jeremiah Zimmerman. Music by Jeff Peters and Bill Markt. Theme song performed by A1 Lafleur. You'll find more podcasts from iHeartRadio on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 